Hello and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I'm your host for today, Jamie Katz, and a big thanks to Tracy Morgan, the original, the primal host of this show. And today, for your pleasure and for my pleasure, I'm talking with John Fletcher, whose book Freud and the Scene of Trauma from Fordham University Press was recently published. John Fletcher is an associate professor of English and comparative studies at University of Warwick in England, where he's been teaching for many years. He's published a lot of articles about psychoanalysis in many different journals, psychoanalytic and otherwise. He often focuses on the work of the French psychoanalyst Jean Laplanche, whose work he's also extensively translated and edited. Many of his lectures from his undergraduate course Literature and Psychoanalysis, Trauma, Fantasy, The Death Drive were recorded and are available on the internet as podcast audio recordings. You can easily find them by searching for Psychoanalysis Podcast, where they appear as the top hit, even above this program, which is, I think, saying something. And that's where I initially found his work. I listened to all 25 hours that are on the internet, and I was so impressed that I've since read several of his papers and was also drawn to read or reread many of the sources he discusses, including Freud and Laplanche's work. And of course, I was drawn to his new book, which I experienced in large part as a sort of advanced continuation of those fantastic podcast lectures. And we're talking with John Fletcher. John Fletcher, welcome. Hello. So can you give us an overview of your work in general and of your new book? Well, the book, it's the context of the book, I suppose, is uh, 20 years of work on and off uh, on psychoanalysis in general, but in particular um, with the work of the French psychoanalyst who recently died, Jean Laplanche, who's mainly known in the Anglophone world as the co-editor, co-writer, co-author of Laplanche and Pantalis, the great um, theoretical dictionary of psychoanalysis uh, in English called The Language of Psychoanalysis. Um, so I was uh, fascinated by his work very early on, uh, particularly the uh, essay that he co-authored with Pontelis on fantasy, um, which was first um, translated and printed in the International Journal of Psychoanalysis and then in various anthologies since then, um, and started reading his work whenever I could lay hands on it. And then there wasn't a lot in English. There was Jeffrey very distinguished translation of life and death in psychoanalysis back in the 1970s. Um, and it wasn't a lot else of Laplanche's in English, uh, a couple of pieces in the IJP. So I started reading him in French uh, and uh, be- became interested in uh, translating him uh, and getting his work into circulation. And he came over to Britain on a number of occasions and there were seminars at the Freud Museum, at the University of Kent, at the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London. So I was able to put them together uh, in a a first volume of his work, which came out in 92, a sort of dossier of um, recorded, uh, transcribed seminars and essays by people about him and translations of him. And that that was the takeoff point, really. Um, I suppose it's been living with Laplanche's work, because he's a... a great translator himself, a translator of Freud, mm-hmm. um, in a way, more so even than Lacan, he, he implemented the return to Freud um, and to the Freudian text uh, in a series of uh, lectures at the Sorbonne, which were all published. Well, they're, they're sort of seminar, we call seminars, but they're really lectures, uh, a seven-volume series called Problematique, where he systematically works through uh, Freud's Work and this is, you know, side by side with his translation. Uh, in French, there wasn't uh, the equivalent of Strachey's magnificent 24-volume standard edition. There were rival and competing translations of individual texts, most of them pretty deficient uh, and, and uh, full of errors. Uh, it, uh, there was never a French of complete until uh, in the late 60s. I think it was about 68, maybe 66, that. Um, Laplanche and a group around him uh, started off producing an earth complete in French, uh, translating from from the beginning, working through the German, uh, uh, and that, in a way, was a source of a lot of his insights. 
uh, and a particular way of understanding uh, the emergence of the Freudian field as a distinct conceptual field. Um, it comes out of a French tradition of history and philosophy of science. Um, people like uh, Congulin, uh and Bachelard, uh, who have a particular way of understanding the formation of psycho- uh, conceptual fields, which is different from, say, um, the way in Anglophone history and philosophy of science paradigm theory or um, just ordinary empiricism as accumulation of um, discoveries, individual discoveries. There's a very distinct way of understanding the, the formation and uh, uh, reformation of, uh, of conceptual fields. And that's uh, been a, a background influence on the way in which he and Contalis drew up their dictionary and the way in which um, they think about Freud's work. Can you so give I felt us I learned a lot examples? from that. Can you give us some well, examples of sort of like a Laplancian reading of Freud? or? Well, a lot of it is centered around the way in which certain terms and concepts get lost and but, but turn up again in, in other forms. Uh, uh, and uh, three major Freudian concepts, uh, which have either, either disappeared or been, as it were, um, survived in a simplified, travestied form, one would be the notion of the drive. Um, and in Freud's German, the distinction between trieve and instinct, where well, instinct is spelled in German with a K, um, and that just got lost in the in, in Strachey's standard edition. Uh, Strachey at least tells you that's what he's doing. He's saying, I'm, I'm going to translate it by the English word instinct. Um, so whenever the word instinct turns up in the standard edition, the German word is trieve. Um, and when... The German word instinct turns up, which isn't very often, but it does turn up occasionally. He has a little footnote telling you that. But the effect is to collapse the conceptual difference between the two terms in, in Freud's German. And it has the unfortunate effect of, of massively rebiologizing the, the drive uh, as if it were a biological instinct, uh, and so the, rather than a distinct psychical formation. Uh, and that's one of the crucial things that... Um, uh, that uh, Laplanche picks up and develops and runs with um, the consequences of, of, of that radical distinction between drive and instinct, which is ambiguous. It's not by any means secure, and Freud never wrote, unfortunately, a metapsychological paper in which he spelled out the differences between the two. So you have to sort of work out, you know, the different conceptual profiles of the two terms in Freud's German um, from the way he uses them, really. Uh, but that's been pretty crucial. Uh, another closely related concept, uh, which was just absent in, in, in Anglophone literature, uh, is um, um the notion of leaning on. Strachey does translate the term um, <coughs> uh, in, in, a, in a sort of technical Greek-derived term, but it, but it gets lost. The specificity of it gets very much lost. Uh, and it's a way of specifying the connection between the, the emergence of the psychical drive and the instinctual self-preservative function on which it leans in, in the German, I'm laying on, uh, and uh, in French that was translated, I think, unfortunately translated, uh, ironically, as by ATA, ATAH, leaning on, and Jeffrey Mailman translated it as propping in his translation of La Planche. So there's a whole debate there around uh, how to specify the emergence of the drive in relationship to the instinctual function on which it leans or models itself and then from which it deviates. And in English, that was the Strachey translation was anaclitic and... That's right. It's a term from grammar, really. Mm. Um, uh, 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 A Greek specialist term that any grammarians use in English to to refer to the way in which um, certain... certain uh, parts of speech or certain uh, words only appear when propped up or lean, leaning on another word, <laughs> if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so it's, there's a quite important relation there as it has consequences, but which just, the importance of which is just lost, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a way, it, it's tra- translating Freud's German into French forced Laplanche and his 
interesting to think about the specificity of this conceptual family, because there's not just that one word, but there's a kind of family of words that are formed out of the notion of unleaning or leaning on. Mm. Um, so, and that's closely related to the, the drive the drive instinct distinction. Mm. Um, and the other big or crucial um, sort of lost concept, if you like, is the notion of Nachträglichkeit um, <coughs> in Freud's German. Uh, or, uh, in, again, it's something that uh, uh, strangely translates by a whole range of different English words. So the specificity as a conceptual family at work in Freud's thought and in his writing gets lost. The one set phrase that I suppose that Strachey uses is that of deferred action. Mm-hmm. It's not just the abstract term, uh, nachträglich kite, um, but the nachträglich is an adjective or as an adverb, uh, and, uh, some other combinations that appears in Freud's writing. And it all gets translated into English as later, subsequently, afterwards. And you wouldn't know as an English reader, that there's a very this conceptual family there or conceptual matrix mm. out of which Freud is generating new terms. Mm. Um, so, and again, deferred action is a prob- problematic translation because it's a one-way linear movement in time from the past to the future. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, uh, as Laplanche and others uh, have brought out, but Laplanche is, in a way, the main um, developer of that reflector, if you like, on, on that that, as it were, lost Freudian concept, um, points out it's a double temporal dimension in, in the way Freud uses it. And Freud's usage of it is variable, um, and, and maybe even at times some of the variations are, are contradictory. But uh, uh, there is a double dimension in which something may be... Um, that is inscribed in one moment is reactivated in another moment. Um, but that's not just a question of postponement or delay, um, uh, in that the second moment acts back on the first. <laughs> so there is a, a backward, a regressive movement in, in time, as it were. And it's the interplay between those temporal dimensions, um, that are, that are crucial in trying to grasp the, at times, slippery complexity of the concept in, in uh, in Freud and in Freud's thought. Yeah, um, this was uh, an important part of your uh, of your book, uh, Freud and the Scene of Trauma. That the way this relates to trauma. Yes, that in a way that's at the heart of my book. Um, is an is an attempt to um, trace, if you like, the adventures or the misadventures of, of that concept in Freud's work. And Laplanche had argued that. The, the, the concept, the concept returns in different ways and at different moments. Uh, it, it originally is formulated in the context of the, of the so-called seduction theory of the mid 1890s, uh, and there it's got a very specific set of connections, and of course a set of limitations because the, the seduction theory uh, is tied to. Um, forms of psychopathology, uh, hysteria in the first instance, then obsessional neurosis, um, and uh, the tracing of a cause back to quite violent, often and abusive forms of, uh, of, of, of sexual experience imposed on the infant or the young child. Uh, and the outcome was always seen as being <clears throat> some destructive form of psychopathology. Um, so it's trapped within that within that formation, as it were, within that framework. Uh, and when Freud uh, struggles against that, um, because he, he starts to make a move from what I've called from symptom to subjectivity, uh, so that when he uh, abandons um, uh, formally the seduction theory, um, he's not just changing, um, you know, looking for another explanation for the same object, because he's changing the object. The object to be explained changes, not just the explanation. And he's, he's trying to give an account of the formation of human psychical structures and of sexuality per se, not just of psychopathology. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the whole thing, there's a shift, a sort of multiple paradigm shift or, or problem, shift of a problematic, if you again to use the French term. Um, <clears throat> I mean, is Freud only sort of um, widening the field to be explored? Or is, I, I know in your book you sort of argue that 
as he does that, something is lost in the from the original yes. theory. Yes. Well, what's what's recognised at a descriptive level in the original theory is the role of the other, the role of the adult other, uh, and of an adult other who has uh, a, a developed sexuality in an unconscious, um, uh, at which then impacts on the, the infant or on the child. Uh, and it's that fundamental relation to the other um, that Freud, rec- uh, you know, encounters in a grotesque um, uh, and, and, and violent form in the seduction theory and in the patients he was struggling to work with and to understand. Um, <clears throat> but it's never properly theorised as such. There are there are very t- t- telling formulations that he uses, particularly in the letters to Fleece. Uh, but you know he talks about the other of. Uh, the sort of, a sort of primal other who's there from the beginning and who is never matched by anyone later. <laughs> um, but it's, it, it, you know, the, note, the emphasis on the other gets lost and returns again. Is there at a descriptive level, um, but it never it never gets properly integrated and conceptualised as the other is prior to the formation of the subject. So the other exists in seduction theory and, and in a lot of psychoanalysis because all psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysts, of course, are aware of the importance of the parents. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but the parents often figure as the objects of fantasy, figures onto whom the child's fantasy is projected, um, and not as, uh, as it were, pro- prior or absolutely fundamental primal cat figures who provoke uh, uh, and kickstart the formation of, psychical, um, of the psychical structure. Right, so uh, the, the parents are always sort of on the outside, but there's a strain of Freudian theory that's like um, everything starts on the inside of the person. That's right, yes, that, that, that's exactly right. And that's where Laplanche, um, in trying to um, think about the strange things that happen in the Freudian field and in its various evolutions, etc., brings in the, the, the analogy with cosmology. Uh, and with the Copernican Revolution, he initially takes that from Freud's own self-designation, where Freud sees psychoanalysis as the third in a series of, uh, of revolutions, um, of a Copernican revolution at the level of the mind, as it were, um, uh, and their movements or revolutions of decentering. So that uh, <clears throat> he, there's a whole history of a struggle between uh, geocentric, uh, uh, which was, became the dominant form of cosmological thought, summarized in the great um, <clears throat> summary work of, of Ptolemy, um, where everything centered on, on the Earth uh, and the various stars and planets move around different complex orbits, etc., uh, uh, around, uh, around the Earth. Uh, and, and an alternative that, that, that um, marginalized and, and at times even persecuted tradition of thought, which sees the sun as the center. Um, <clears throat> and even up into the Renaissance with Galileo and Copernicus, of course, they're, they're under threat from, <laughs> from uh, uh, the church. The Christian church receives this as a calling into question as their whole, um, their whole uh, divine cosmology, as it were. So uh, a, a, a revolutionary movement of decentering which reacts against a hitherto dominant model that is a sort of centering on the, on the human uh, and on the, on the place of the human on the earth. Uh, and Freud sees Darwin accomplishing such a, a conceptual revolution with, uh, with evolution, which sees the human species uh, not as, you know, in the book of Genesis, you know, put in place to, to rule over uh, 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 and to order um, the natural world uh, or to, or to um, care for it in various versions of this uh, founding myth of origins. But um, as simply one species that have evolved at a certain point under certain conditions as a sort of decentering. Freud then offers himself in psychoanalysis as the third stage in which uh, <coughs> the ego is not master in its own house. It, ha- it comes up against uh, uh, symptoms and things it doesn't understand that feel as if they have come from the outside uh, uh, and which it struggles against. But uh, in a long speech to the ego <laughs> in that essay of Freud, uh, 1917, I think it is, uh, where he elaborates this 
uh, at its fullest. Um, this this story of the three decenterings, um, <clears throat> uh, the ego has to learn that uh, it, uh, the things that it feels as being alien are, are, are things that it is disowned and repressed and repudiated, but which are essentially part of itself. <clears throat> and the planche picks up this uh, <clears throat> cosmological analogy uh, and turns it against Freud. Um, uh, so he, his version of it, of the, of the distinction between the Copernican and the Ptolemaic, don't, doesn't coincide with Freud's because he wants to say that actually in that very essay, um, the gesture that turns around and says, these alien things that appear to have possessed you from without um, are really you. And you have to learn to accept them as your feelings, your impulses, your memories, whatever they might be. <clears throat> and Laplanche sees that as a sort of um, inevitable return to centering that takes place, um, uh, where, where an, an otherness gets reduced back into the self again. Um, what appears to be other is really just you, and you have to accept that and acknowledge it. This thing of darkness, I acknowledge mine, the famous line of Prospero's about <coughs> Caliban and the Tempest sums, sums up that injunction, if you like. Why is that movement of Freud's where he recenters or sort of takes back uh, something, like you said, he doesn't quite explicitly theorize it, but it's in his work, and then he sort of recoils from it? Why is that yes. inevitable? Is that a universal thing that well, happens to thinkers? In the ca- it's, well, in the case of psychoanalysis, it's, it's quite something quite specific to psychoanalytic thought in the sense that psychoanalytic thought seeks to grapple with, to track the development of, to conceptualize, to understand the formation uh, of the human subject and of hu- human subjectivity. Uh, and um, it's a kind of, if you like, almost a Hegelian proposition um, that, uh, that characterizes Laplanche's take on this, that um, the movement of the object um, is replicated in the movement of the, uh, of the of the thought that seeks to understand the, con- the the object, and the object in question is the human object. Um, and he and Laplanche says at one point, it doesn't make sense to, to say of the physical universe that it was originally Ptolemaic and then was originally Copernican and then became Ptolemaic, if you like. But it, but it does make sense to say to make to, to make that argument about. Uh, the formation of the human subject, um, that the human subject begins centered on the other, not on itself, um, uh, in its radical dependency, its radical openness. Um, so this is very oppo- opposed to certain forms of uh, ego psychology or um, that, that see, uh, you know, a kind of... Um, uh, closure of the subject, you know, from the very beginning, and the, and the problem is how does the subject open up to the uh, the outside world and find the first not me object, as, uh, as Winnicott says, um, and then tr- and the traditional object, which is the bridge between the solipsistic enclosed little <coughs> humanoid ego who then has to open out into a world of others and of other objects. And Laplanche says it's actually the reverse of that. The human infant is radically vulnerable, radically open, um, and has to, has to acquire uh, uh, defensive boundaries, the possibility of closure to protect itself from what comes to it, as it were, um, because it is, as in the little story of the vesicle that, um, that Freud tells, the sort of theoretical myth or allegory of the vesicle that Freud tells in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, uh, the infant begins life, you know, r- radically open and de- radically dependent, unable to do things for itself in a, in a way that's, um, Extreme by analogy with, say, even uh, relatively close animal species. Um, you know, the need for the infant is to acquire a boundary, to acquire the senses, to acquire an ego, if you like. The ego isn't there. Even Freud says that in a narcissism paper. You know, the ego isn't there from the beginning. It has to be formed. And what are the processes? What is the new psychical action that turns uh, the autoerotic primal drives into the narc- a narcissistically loved ego? Um, but he's quite capable of saying the opposite of that um, and positing a kind of uh, some sort of uh, uh, ego that's uh, from the beginning. And that that's that again is one of those instances where, like that, 
the, the, the Trebe instinct ambiguity, uh, the ego that is formed as a, at a later stage by a new psychical action as against a kind of ego that's there from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And the same with the concept of the unconscious. Um, <clears throat> Laplanche argues uh, there's the unconscious as a formation, as a construction produced by primal repression, which is the unconscious is theorized in the metapsychological papers in 1915. And then there's the primal id, the id that is there from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and uh, Jeffrey Mailman, I think, in a, in, a, in a wonderfully eloquent comment in his introduction to his translation of Life and Death, uh, says the Freudian apparat- conceptual apparatus is, as it were, cassetted by two, two alternative conceptualities, as it were. Um, there are alternating and, uh, and, um, conflicting, um, meanings, uh, attached to some of the key terms in, in Freud's thought. Uh, so there's the, there's the, un- the, the primal lid that there's from the beginning. And then there's the unconscious that is constructed in and through repression as the other side of the formation of the ego and its defenses and its boundaries. And, then, uh, and, and there's an oscillation between the two in Freud. Mm-hmm. Um, now that oscillation is, is, is understood by Laplanche not as just, oh, why can't Freud be self-consistent? Give him five out of ten or even less. Logical consistency, um, but that is driven by the way in which his thought um, is magnetized by and compelled by what Laplanche calls an exigence, an exigency, something that's in the nature of the object itself that both impels the thought that seeks to grapple with it, but also um, leads it off into uh, recenterings and passes. Uh, what he calls a uh, French word fouvoiement, which is going astray. Mm-hmm. So the going astray isn't just as simple to be understood as making an error or making a mistake, because the very going astray at the level of theory replicates um, what is happening in the in the formation of the structure of the human being. Mm-hmm. It's uh, a it's a very interesting way of reading Freud because it's you and Laplanche, you read them very closely and it's like full of sort of a, a sense of respect and trying to find threads that are, you know, very difficult to, uh, you know, they're not explicitly said by Freud. But at the same time, there's a sort of a critique that doesn't, the tone isn't um, condemning of Freud or attacking him. No. Well, there's been so much of that, hasn't there? So much Freud bashing and Freud trashing, um, and even psychoanalysts seem to have been affected by that. You know, um, may, um, I was just rather shocked by recent books on Freud's, which are, from which I learned something, but which then at a certain moment, you know, um, have an attitude of kind of dis- embarrassment and dismissal of, of, of key moments in Freud's thought, etc. So it's the critique, you need some sort of immanent critique that understands uh, the way in which the Freudian field is impelled by uh, contradictory gravitational t- tugs, if you like, which can be summed up metaphorically as, uh, you know, the Copernican and, and the Ptolemaic, the decentering movements of thought and their recentering. And the recentering takes place in the human psyche, uh, as it were, um, <clears throat> uh, because in order to survive psychically, um, the human subject forms defenses, boundaries, withdraws from, you know, the input that has come from the other in order to defend itself against another that is understood by Laplanche as seductive. And so he wants to uh, formulate what he calls a general theory of seduction, a seduction that is a primal seduction, but also an ex- something that's excessive and exciting and traumatizing in, in, in an almost technical sense of the word, something that is ex- that implants or inscribes uh, highly charged uh, excessive, something that are excessive and can't be made sense of by the recipient. Uh, this human subject in formation struggles to translate and to bind <clears throat> and to filter uh, and to defend itself against these exciting, seductive, traumatizing transmissions uh, that come from the from the adult other on which it is in its earlier stages so radically dependent. Uh huh. And, and and your examples of that are sexual trauma and things like that. But there's also um, the example of little Hans's mother 
commenting on his genitals and that being sort of yes. an enigmatic moment for him. And exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, you take Little Hands as a case study, and when I teach it, I always teach it alongside uh, the second essay on infantile sexuality from the three essays. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, the case study exemplifies and concretizes and appears to confirm Freud's theory of infantile sexuality, and he's enormously pleased by that, and, and, and grateful to Little Hands, you know, for being, you know, such a perfect exemplification. Going on the other the hand... the oral phase, the anal phase. Yes, that's, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, um, if you compare the text carefully, the term fantasy... Does hardly appears in three essays at all, and certainly not in their first version. And it's, it, it appears uh, uh, marginally or minimally in, in later you know, editions, which are, which are so um, so many of them to the to the three essays. Fantasy just isn't there, um, and yet the, the case study turns entirely around fantasy. You know, the fantasy of the horse, the horse that might come into the room at night and bite him, the horse that might at Gamunden, the horse that falls down and makes a noise with its feet, the, the horse that has a black muzzle, uh, little hands. This is an extraordinarily prolific producer of fantasies through which, you know, he negotiates his way, you know, in relationship to the demands that are made on him by the parents, some of them explicit, some of them at the level of, of unconscious wishes and, and unconscious desire. So he finds him himself in this highly charged familial field, uh, and he produces this endless series of fantasies uh, as a way of shifting and negotiating and, and repositioning himself. And that's, that's what's so wonderful about the case study. It's so rich in terms of uh, little hands of struggle at a, a kind of self-symbolization and a self-positioning. And none of that's there in the three essays, you know, um, particularly in infantile sexuality essay. It's quite extraordinary. Uh, the absences, if you like, uh, in that in the, in, the, in that early text of Freud's, and yet the wonderful moment in the third essay where Freud is talking about um, uh, the, the finding of an object, adult object choice, is in fact a refinding of it, and this is wonderfully poignant and, and really quite moving, couple of brief but but eloquent description of maternal seduction. Uh, what what Laplante would call, I guess, uh, primal seduction, where he says, I can actually read a couple of sentences um, from it. He says, uh, a child's intercourse with anyone responsible for his care affords him an unending source of sexual excitations and satisfaction from his erotogenic zones. This is especially so since... The person in charge of him, who after all is as a rule his mother, herself regards him with feelings that are derived from her own sexual life. She strokes him, she kisses him, rocks him, and quite clearly treats him as a substitute for a complete sexual object. A mother would probably be horrified if she were made aware that all her marks of affection were rousing her child's sexual instinct and preparing for its later intensity. She regards what she does as asexual, pure love, since, after all, she carefully avoids applying more excitations to the child's genitals that are unavoidable in nursery care. And then he, a bit later, there's this wonderful sentence, she is, after all, only fulfilling her task in teaching the child to love. So it's a wonderful evocation and description of maternal, almost a celebration mm-hmm. of maternal seduction as what uh, awakens uh, and provokes the, child, the emergence of the child's drives um, uh, uh, and which teaches him to love. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's something that, you know, that, that comes from the unconscious dimension of, uh, of the adult's um, input into the process of nurturing. So seduction there, the awakening of drives or desire in the other, um, seduction in its proper sense, not just as a euphemism for sexual abuse, um, is, well, it's celebrated um, and, it's, it, and it's crucial for the development of psychic life. Um, now, but that all takes place descriptively, you know, at the, at the conceptual level. There is no other, you know, except as a, as an object of the drives rather than as what, uh, provokes the drives. Uh, and in your book, I remember you also found passages in Freud where he talks about the father having this, um, these rivalrous feelings with the child 
prior yes. to that aspect of you know the Oedipal complex. Yes, well, that's descriptively there in in, in Little Hands, um, though he's still you know at the end of the case study as it. As a, as a, the, the dominant level of theorization in three essays, the Oedipus complex is something that spontaneously emerges in the infant, right? <clears throat> Rather than something that is, emerges out of the familial situation. Uh, <clears throat> except in, in Leonardo, you know, where in Freud's wonderful capacity to turn things around 180 degrees, um, he resituates the whole thing momentarily. Uh, and the importance of that, well, the importance of that for my book is that I structured my book around um, opening chapters, which give a very, very detailed, close, patient, as I hoped, um, attention to the seduction theory, the emergence of the concept of, of traumatic, traumatic seduction and of the repetitions it produces in the text of the 1890s. Um, it's a, a official abandonment, but the fact that it then continues underground and returns in, in serial forms um, <clears throat> in screen memories uh, uh, the whole question of screen memories um, in the Wolfman case uh, in transference papers um, but also in a wonderful way in the Leonardo uh, text because their seduction explicitly returns um, and uh, Laplanche is the one who sort of started thinking, me and others, thinking about the Leonardo case in relationship to the seduction theory. So Laplanche thinks or has argued that the seduction theory doesn't return, um, but um, the acknowledgement and the disc- and descriptive attention to maternal seduction is central to the whole um, Leonardo study. But again, to Laplanche at this point, I argue that actually there is a conceptual return to in the form of the screen memory. Uh, and uh, what I think Laplanche doesn't pay sufficient attention to is um, that there are two forms of the screen memory, the, uh, the progressive and the regressive screen memory. And uh, <coughs> Freud predominantly talks about screen memories in terms of uh, the regressive screen memory. Though he says the progressive screen memories are the most common. He then spends all his time analyzing examples, whether it's in the 1899 paper on screen memories or in the chapters in um, <coughs> psychoanalysis of everyday life. A regressive screen memory being um, something happening now that we project into the past. Yes, in which uh, an innocent... Uh, childhood scene comes to represent and to disguise um, feelings and impulses that are that are of the present moment or of a, a much later moment, uh, which are, as it were, inscribed and congealed and disguised all at once. In and it, like the, the 1899 paper of the the, children, the two little boys playing with their little girl cousin, she has a very uh, lovely little uh, uh, bunch of flowers she's picked, and the two boys turn on her and they, as it were, deflower her. In tears, she runs up to a, a nurse and she's given um, some delicious black bread and some butter and the two boys then throw the flowers away and run up and they demand to be given this as well. And Freud's whole analysis of that, a brilliant, wonderful analysis in its way, um, is of <coughs> the way in which adolescent fantasies of Freud's uh, about a, a, a young woman um, whom he had known in his childhood um, uh, are being, um, well, they're being uh, uh, recorded and, 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 and disguised at the same time in this in this screen memory. Um, but in the and he starts off in the Leonardo case with it, invoking that same backward regressive um, logic by looking at the Leonardo's memory of being in his cradle and a and a huge bird comes down, inserts his tail into his mouth and beats about quite aggressively inside the child's mouth and flies and then leaves him and he and. Uh, Leonardo's note in the margin of this text, which is written on the flight of kites of Nibios, um, <clears throat> says, and this is why I felt that I have always been fated, fated to, to study the flight of such birds. Um, it's a kind of personal myth of origins of, of Leonardo. And Freud says the obvious move, well, obviously, this, this is not a real memory. <laughs> um, this is a back projection onto infancy. But without quite 
almost as if he doesn't quite realize it himself, certainly without telling the reader that's what he's doing, that regressive model is inverted into a progressive model because the final um, level of of inscription that he uncovers behind was initially he sees as a homosexual fantasy um, is not... Um, uh, as you might have expected, a scene of sexual abuse or something like that of the kind his letters to Fleece are full of. Uh, but no, it's the child being suckled at the breast. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's, it's a, a universal experience that everybody has of being nurtured, of oral, oral satisfaction of the first fundamental oral pleasures, mm-hmm. uh, which, which are then uh, successively represented by this fantasy. And of course that begs the question, well, why does it need to be disguised? Um, and particularly, why is it disguised by such a traumatic action, uh, a traumatic scene in which this bird aggressively inserts its tail? And the Italian is pequatesse. It's quite a, you know, percussive. It's quite a violent verb in the Italian. Um, so I, I, I want to, I work through that to try and demonstrate the way in which um, the seduction theory as a conceptual formation, not just as a description of seduction, but as a conceptual formation, turns up again in that text under the guise of the concept of the progressive screen memory. So that's a, it's one of the returns in a, in a really wonderful way. And of course, at the very heart of that, Freud then inverts the whole Oedipal formation. You know, one seduction at the level of description and, and conceptual formation is allowed to return in his thought and in his writing. We get that extraordinary description of the, uh, the way in which, um, what is ostensibly starts out as being describing the unique and peculiar situation of Leonardo. Um, he very rapidly generalizes into a series of extraordinary statements about um, uh, every young husband <laughs> feels, you know, their favorite to be a rival. Um, and uh, <clears throat> the, the, the mother-infant relationship, particularly if it's a male infant, um, uh, satisfies the deepest, uh, most archaic, perverse impulses and gratifications, etc. <laughs> so you've suddenly got the Oedipus complex as being, you know, maternal seduction and uh, uh, and paternal rivalry and aggression. Um, uh, it's completely stood on its head um, in a way that makes, you know, it almost uh, calls out for something like a Laplantian, a Laplantian framework of what are the enigmatic, traumatizing transmissions that are coming from the, the nurturing, protecting adults to the to the infant. You know, what form of psychodra- adult psychodrama is being played out in and through the relation to the child? Um, and there it is, suddenly, you know, really... <laughs> It's extraordinary. Freud just suddenly inverts his whole Oedipal model, you know, and then passes on. <laughs> he doesn't comment on it or even notice it. it. Yes, it's, it's really quite... What, but what follows it is even more extraordinary, of course. It's his celebratory description of the paintings of uh, St. John the Baptist and of Bacchus um, as these beautiful feminine young men who have this Leonardesque smile, the smile of the mother, um, in which a secret of love is hidden. Um, and he, and this is kind of almost like a love poem that Freud writes to these beautiful young men, a celebration of male femininity or even male effeminacy in these paintings uh, of Leonardo's. Uh, and it, it's again, it's extraordinary. It even comes through Strachey's at times rather stiff translation. This kind of lyrical celebration of uh, of male effeminacy. Um, not what you'd think you would be getting from Sigmund Freud, um, but it is a wonderful moment uh, in in the text, um, and it follows on immediately from the inversion of the Oedipus complex. Um, and it's, it's a clearly a sign from the beginning. If one was giving a, a more extensive um, reading of the, of the Leonardo text, Freud, Freud is, is being seduced. Freud is in love with Leonardo. Mm. It's a whole case study. It's like a, a, love, a love letter to Leonardo. Sigmund loves Leonardo, who was also, of course, a Copernican hero, as Freud points out. You know, there are these diary entries of um, Leonardo's in which he says. Um, the sun doesn't, il sole non muove, the sun doesn't move, right? We move around it, right? But of course he keeps it to himself, um, hidden in an unpublished diary. But for Freud, this is another reason why 
Leonardo, Leonardo's Freud breaks for Leonardo. <laughs> Leonardo is tops. Um, <clears throat> so a number of these things come together in his text. Um, and they've obviously got, you know, undeclared but in very intimate underground connections with each other. Um, the return of seduction, the inversion of the Oedipus, the celebration of male effeminacy, um, and the Copernican Revolution. <laughs> there they all are, all lined up in the one text. It's is that quite, quite an extraordinary text. Is that your favorite Freud Freud book? I think, it, well, in some ways it is. I love teaching it. Um, and, I, and I always give the students the Leonardo paintings to look at and to think about. Um, and those and, are in the book as well, yeah. Yes, well, I, I mean, I'm I'm completely fascinated by it. I'm I'm I'm, I'm seduced as well. <laughs> <laughs> the cycle continues. Yes. You also have an amazing section of the book um, talking about the transference, and I was I was just sort of wondering about your and Laplanche's theories that we've been talking about are more just way of reading being applied clinically. It seems possible to listen in the same way, to listen to patients in the same way that you're reading these texts? Yes, I, 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 think, I think that's true. Certainly, Laplanche has a very distinct... Uh, I elaborate this much more in an article I wrote about uh, on Laplanche's work in, in, in Psychoanalytic Quarterly in 2007. I have an extensive account of uh, Laplanche's model of the analytic situation. He never publishes any of his own case studies, and people often complain. But he he does have a, a, an extraordinarily rich and highly developed account of the analytic situation, what its drivers are, um, and and uh, a typology of different forms of transference. Um, which and it's a very rich um, uh, and in its way quite austere because he really. He really is saying, hands off the patients. Mm. You know, uh, uh, he, he really wants to warn off the analyst from from giving a too heavily um, Freudian or Lacanian or Kleinian or Laplanchian, um, as it were, uh, construction. Uh, as it were, he sees the role of the analyst as being um, an enabler. He says, uh, as a, a guardian, a protector of the primary process. Mm -hmm. um, because that's that's what has to happen in the in the analytic space uh, is that the that, that what the analysand brings has to be listened to very carefully um, for its fault lines and its you know its points of fracture if you like uh, and um, uh, and 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 in a sense broken down or deconstructed to enable something else to emerge. But what that something else is, only the patient can tell you. Um, so he's got, in some ways, <clears throat> quite austere practice as a listener. Um, um, Have you ever thought of being a, um, a clinician or a, you know, a psychoanalyst? Or? Uh, I had thought about training, but it was very difficult to to combine it with the complicated personal and academic life that I was <laughs> having. I did start off going to some training seminars at one training, and then it was, I just couldn't couldn't manage it. But I was in analysis for about 12 years, so I, I have had an extensive experience from one side of the couch. <laughs> you know, it, it, uh, and uh, so... Um, uh, and, and that is a lot. That that is very much alive in one's even sometimes most abstract or theoretical reflections. Definitely, um, it's they're energized by <laughs> you know it, those experiences. And I think people who have been in analysis, even if even though they're non-clinicians, write differently about analysis from people who are just for whom it's just another theory. Uh -huh. Were you in analysis with Laplanche, if I could ask? No, no, no. I was in an analysis in England. Um, that was a British analyst. Okay. I know you no, said Laplanche yeah. never wrote about his patients. Maybe his patients would never tell about him also. Uh, I'm not aware of anyone writing about about um, being in analysis with Laplanche. Mm -hmm. um, there's quite a bit about people who've been in analysis with Lacan. Um, or, or with Masoud Khan, uh -huh. <laughs> um, uh, but or not, Freud, yeah, or Freud, indeed, uh, or, or very much so. You know, HD and, uh, is the least of it. Uh -huh. um, so yes, yeah, so that, uh, the, the transference papers, you know, replay a lot of the same conceptual um, 
uh, anomalies as as abstraction theory favors. Mm-hmm. You know, there is some kind of pr- primal scene, um, and it's uh, and it's repeated in different forms, and um, or, or as in a screen memory model, and there's a particular form of temporality of Nachtschlägerkeit of art, what Leplanche suggests that his translation of the German is of afterwardsness because of course the German word, Freud's German word na- comes from quite ordinary words in German nach and träger nach meaning after uh, and the verb träger to carry or to bear um, and of course that 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 Nachträger can refer to somebody who's bearing or carrying a grudge or a grievance um, uh, and they're perfectly ordinary words uh, in German uh, whether they're you know, a verb or a, uh, an adverb or an adjective or whatever. And then Freud turns it into this abstraction, Nachträglichkeit, which is... So uh, uh, the nearest English translation of that would be afterwardsness. And at first that sounds rather odd, but actually it's a word that's been taken up a bit because it, it's got a staying power in English, I think. And it, and it captures that forward-backward mm-hmm. double temporal dimension, the peculiarity of the temporality of, 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 of trauma. Um, that um, the deferred action just doesn't catch, really. And that's what's at play in the transference papers, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, what, how to understand that compulsion to repeat that is the transference, and what is it that's being tra- tra- uh, repeated, and is it real? Sometimes Freud says it's unreal, <laughs> and other times he then turns around 180 degrees and says, no, it's a form of reality, a psychical reality itself. Um, he has, he replays the same argument over again with the, the paper on transference love, you know. Uh, he, he, he dramatizes the, this little uh, drama in which he has to say to a, an importunate, um, and smitten female patient, you know, this, this love isn't a real love, you know. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs some, to your past, etc. And the patient won't, won't, um, accept this. Um, uh, and then he turns around and he says that the analyst has to understand it's an unreal love. And then he turns around 180 degrees and says, no, all the, all the extreme qualities of this transference love that he'd been pointing to as grounds for saying it's unreal are really grounds for saying it's real. Mm-hmm. Because, because all love is like that, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it's a wonderful to trace through in that text the way in which this 180 degree conceptual reversal takes place in, in Freud's argument, um, which, which itself is a symptomatic expression of those, what's peculiar about that form of transference. And it's what, in my account, drives Freud's whole um, conceptual career, really. And it's what I try to trace in the book. Because I, what I, I don't talk, I, who could talk about all of Freud's work, but I, what I've chosen is um, to focus on uh, three chapters on the seduction theory, mm-hmm. on, on the literary byproducts of that. We haven't talked about literature in this conversation, but um, at the key turning points, of crisis and impasse and reformulation, um, 1897-1919, Freud, <coughs> Freud disappears into literature, whether it's into uh, Oedipus the King by Sophocles or Shakespeare's Hamlet uh, in the 1890s, or fits into the German Gothic writer E.T.A. Hoffmann and his his story, The Sandman, and the whole aesthetic of the uncanny, Das Unheimliche, um, in, in 1919. Uh, where the literature uh, is turning to literary text as a sort of thought experiment in which he replays the the the, the rival the decentering recentering movements that, that are gripping him. Uh, he plays them out in relation to these literary texts. Um, so, <clears throat> the death drive is the uh, you know. Is, 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 He's writing the, the, the Beyond the Pleasure Principle and the essay on the Uncanny on two separate desks, as it were. Um, and uh, uh, one is the reverse of the other, or the other side of the other, if you like. So the death drive, again, is that where trauma returns in slightly disguised... Well, it's open at the beginning. Um, the war uh, and, Yeah, and, uh, and then he suddenly makes this wholesale transference across... Um, from a repetition compulsion. Uh, again, a, a series of 180 degrees conceptual reversals take place, and suddenly he's talking about the organic compulsion to repeat. It's an extraordinary non-idea in a way. Um, so what looks like and what is normally treated as um, the triumph of the biological in Freud's thought 
over the psychological. Um, and this is the initial idea for this is, comes from Laplanche, uh, and, and I try to follow it through and develop it. Um, is actually the reverse is what's happening. It appears to be biological, um, but it's actually uh, a, a, tr- a transference from the psychical concepts from the psychical sphere um, are just dumped into the field of, uh, of apparent of, of what's called biology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he talks about uh, an organic compulsion to repeat. Now, what would that be? You know, this is a psychological concept, <laughs> the compulsion to repeat. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, do, what do you mean calling it organic? Um, <clears throat> and again, with the, the life drive, um, he has this extraordinary, he goes through all these experiments to, that he considers that various biologists have made as, as to whether uh, death is death is there from the beginning, an intrinsic part of life, or whether it's an acquired and, and living beings in their primitive form were initially immortal. And he considers various experiments, and then he just kind of sweeps them aside and says, doesn't matter. <laughs> um, there would have been a tendency to uh, the death drive um, uh, underneath, you know, uh, latently, um, and he goes on to consider the life, the life instinct, or he still uses the German word tree to describe what he's talking about, uh, and he, he draws on libido theory and just says, oh, these most, these protozoa, these fundamental, you know, units of, of living matter, um, uh, libidinally cathect each other to form um, more complex, you know, uh, biological entities, um, and, and suddenly you've got tr- you know, a wholesale transfer across into what's supposed to be biological discourse um, of concepts taken from uh, psychoanalytic theory of the, of, of the libido. Mm-hmm. Um, so what and what he's calling biology actually is just a transposed mm. set of simplified um, psychoanalytic term, uh, concepts. I mean, it reminds um, me very much of the um, the early hysterical patients who would have paralyses that didn't make neurological sense, right? Yes, that's an interesting uh, analogy to make, actually. What looks like it's biological or neurological, um, but actually is determined by a the operation of unconscious ideas and unconscious memories yeah. being played out through the body, um, uh, and uh, but a lot, a lot of people, you know, take very seriously this this attempt, this this um, apparent triumph of the biological. Though it's not Darwinian, of course, um, he, he draws on forms of, uh, of of biological theory um, that would have been. Um, well, by the time in the 1920s, no one really believes them anymore, but they were dominant in the 19th century, you know. So, um, particularly his favorite one, uh, the, the, the biogenetic law, so-called, in which um, uh, uh, the development of the individual replicates the development of the species. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, ontogeny rather repeats phylogenesis, mm-hmm. where phylogenesis is the, the development of the species through various evolutionary stages, which are replicated ostensibly, so the claim was made, um, in the development of the fetus and in the later biological development of the, uh, of the organism, mm-hmm. etc. And Freud borrows that term as a way to sort of prop up his idea of, mm-hmm. uh, of, of, a, of, a, of an instinct that um, doesn't lead to development of life, but leads to absolute discharge of all of all energy and to uh, entropy and inertia, mm-hmm. um, which of course is not an instinct at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he uses the word instinct. What he's talking about is an anti-instinct. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it, it's mechanical. It's a, it, it's there in the 1895 you know, project for scientific analysis as this you know, discharge to zero. It's the blindest, most mechanical um, notion you could you could find. Um, and even there, he admits at the beginning of our 1895 text that he's come to this idea by thinking about um, the way um, feelings and emotions work in dreams, in, in the condensation displacement of the dream work, uh, or in historical symptom formation. So even there, it is most apparently anatomical or mechanical in the 1895 text. He says, oh, well, I got this idea from thinking about dreams and hysterical symptoms. You know, and then back, uh, you know, 20 years later or more in, the, in 1920, uh, when he's, you know, he's, he's, as it were, wanting to talk about the biological, um, the, the terms are taken directly. There's a direct conceptual transfer at the price of a massive simplification, it has to be said, but a direct conceptual transfer um, from trauma theory and libidinal theory. Mm. 
Why, why does he do that? What's gained by that type of operation attributing to science? Well, it's a te- I think it's an attempt to ground something, um, to ground psychical um, processes and formations that he finds um, well, almost traumatizing, you know, puzzling, anomalous, yeah. disturbing. Right. He, that's what he did, of course, with some of the more simplified accounts of the, of, of, of the primal scene. He wants to s- trace it all back to a real event, you know, to something material, physical, uh, concretely locatable, as it were, uh, as the explanation for, um, you know, symptomologies and, uh, 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 and phenomena that are, that are disturbing and puzzling. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know he wants to ground it all in in biology, but but then he, if you look at the text, another te- the final re- recurrence of trauma trauma um, conceptuality, if you like, is in Moses and monotheism, and I and I just didn't have time and space to do a close reading of that text, so I I pay some attention to it because the trauma theory has a wonderful last efflorescence, hmm. you know, in Moses and Mon. In some ways, you could say the most clearly set out most thorough integration of neurosis theory and trauma theory takes place in a little, you know, enclosed conceptual capsule, <laughs> if you like, in the body of this weird and wonderful piece of wild psychoanalysis, which is Moses and monotheism, and his speculations about Jewish history, and uh, 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 etc. Um, and buried in it um, is this extraordinary recurrence of trauma theory, but of course, in, in that text, there's no mention of the life and death drive. Mm. There's no mention of the vesicle. There's no mention of any of the concepts mm. um, which he had grouped around um, the model of the motion to repeat. Yeah. Uh, it's just as if the text had never been written. These two texts in which aversion, either at the level of history or at the level of biology, is a compulsion to repeat. is a central conceptual matrix of those two texts. And they're like two ships that pass in the night. Mm. You know, the concepts of one are not, are not alluded to in the other, you know. Moses and monotheism draws on totem and taboo, but it completely ignores um, beyond the pleasure principle. The death drive isn't mentioned, I don't think, in the whole text. It's quite extraordinary. <laughs> it's interesting. He has to repress the ideas even as he transcends what he's leaving behind. He, he can't. Um, he can't work it in or explain it or apologize for it or... <laughs> I mean, it's as if there are two... There, there is if there are these... Um, what I've thought of as, as, uh, as um, gravitational movements within the Freudian field uh, that, that don't let go, that, 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 that keep replicating themselves and making demands and, and just reappearing, forcing their way into Freud's thought... Um, uh, in, in, and it left me um, uh, wonderstruck <laughs> and puzzled, you know, by the outcomes. You know, I was left towards the end of my book just looking at Beyond the Pleasure Principle, looking at Moses and monotheism, and thinking, how do I put these two together? <laughs> you know, because because tra- traumatic re- compulsion to repeat and traumatic repetition is at the heart of both of them, and yet they compete completely. Um, dismantle or, you know, undo the other. Each one undoes the other. It's, it, it's an extraordinary place to end up at the end of uh, that very rich and, uh, and, and innovatory, you know, career of, of, of Freud. You know, it's extraordinary. It left me just bereft at the end. I really didn't know what to say when confronted with. <laughs> With these two extraordinary texts, really. Well, I guess it's—I guess it's a late text in terms of chronology, but we don't have to think of it necessarily as a linear time, like you've been saying. And of course, you know, traditional psychoanalysis embarrassed by, as indeed Freud was sort of embarrassed by, <laughs> what he was nevertheless compelled to write. Um, <laughs> you know, um, so uh, it, but it is an extraordinary final. You know, like like the, you know, Beethoven's late string quartets, or you know, late Shostakovich, or something. It's extraordinary, um, you know, evolution or you know, revolution um, and repetition at the same time at, at, a, at a theoretical level, which is also something obviously he's lived he's living out. You know, he himself signals that very clearly at the beginning of Moses that you know his whole account trapped in Vienna, um, initial false hopes of the Austrian Catholic. 
Catholic Church will protect the Jews in the realization they're not going to, you know, um, and here he is engaged in a de- extraordinary deconstructive of, uh, exercise uh, 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 in, in, in a kind of rewriting of Jewish history <laughs> as, this, as this, you know, isolated Jew under attack, you know, um, uh, in, uh, in Nazi-occupied Europe. I mean, <laughs> it's an extraordinary sort of performance, really. Um, on a personal note, reading your book and and also listening to the um, the podcasts of your your lectures has really spurred me to revisit or you know sometimes read for the first time some of the more obscure or not obscure um, Freud texts. It's just um, a very inspiring new way of of reading it. It's really made everything sort of come alive for me again. Well, I think it does for my students because unlike the way Freud is taught. Um, in uh, psychology departments in universities or um, in, even in training institutes, and I, I suspect it varies a lot in training institutes, mm-hmm. but it, it's, it's through paraphrase mm-hmm. and summary, conceptual summary. Um, and, and I think you have to grasp Freud's thought in its in its movements, and that is, you know, from one paragraph to another sometimes. Mm-hmm. There are conceptual somersaults from one paragraph to another. You have to, you know, you have to follow the text through um, and, 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 and watch how it works, um, really. And when you do that, students are really energized. And, of course, they don't then feel, oh, God, this is a, Freud, a text, a course, about Freud. Either we're trashing him because he's wrong, or he's God and he's on the pedestal, and of course, whatever he said must be right. You know, it gives them a way to pay attention, a really faithful attention to Freud's thinking and writing, um, but watching him struggling with these you know, opposing tendencies that have, that have you know, brought, brought into being his very field of thought, as it were. Um, and it's a way of getting out of that um, idealization um, uh, or trashing, mm-hmm. which seemed to dominate the, the, the you know public discourses about Freud. I mean, I think uh, Freud trashing and Freud hating. There's an extraordinary book called Killing Freud <laughs> that I bought a copy of because I just couldn't not buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Killing Freud, and you buy something called Todd. Todd friend and you thought, you know, what kind of psychodrama is driving that? <laughs> <laughs> or worshipping um, Freud would be the other extreme, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's much less of that these days, right. um, I think. Um, and even in training, training institutes, um, you know, uh, Klein has taken over, or Lacan has taken over, mm-hmm. as it were, as, uh, as, as the god on the pedestal. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> Mrs. Klein teaches us, or Lacan Guy. <laughs> <laughs> or one day um, there'll be a book, Killing Lacan. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> he certainly didn't want that. He would say, whereas Lacan would say, Je suis le maître. Um, Laplanche would say, Je ne suis pas maître. Je ne suis pas maître. He, didn't, he really deeply didn't want that. Um, partly because he'd been a student of Lacan's, of course, um, and, and wouldn't, wouldn't participate in the sort of anti-Lacanian um, trashing, but but distanced himself very much from a lot of Lacanian theory and practice, um, particularly the short sessions. Um, but also, he didn't want that kind of um, that psychodrama around him and his teachings at all. Um, whether he'll escape it is another question, of course. <laughs> right here, we are being Laplanchians together for this hour. <laughs> <laughs> right. And on that note, I want to thank you for your time. Um, I enjoyed this conversation a lot, and your book, uh, I recommend it for everyone, Freud and the Scene of Trauma. We've been talking with John Fletcher and signing off for New Books in Psychoanalysis.